0: Hello, everyone. Welcome to Back from the Borderline, the podcast that helps bring you home to you. I'm really excited today. We're going to have a super laid back, kiki, fun friends hanging out episode. We've been taking a walk the last couple of weeks together. Now I'm back in my house. And yeah, I've got some really fun stuff for us to discuss today. So without further ado, let's jump straight into it hello everyone it's nice to see you hear you be around you even though you're listening to this in the future you know what i mean but you get what i'm saying i'm happy that you're listening for you it's just like hey i'm glad you're here i am hanging out i've got some incense burning i'm taking a week off the walk episodes and just hanging out but we're still keeping it pretty laid back I'm not going to lie. I had a really long week this week and I was going to skip the episode, but then I thought, you know what? My amazing listeners would prefer me to show up and just have a relaxed episode. I know y'all don't expect me to come prepared with tons of information and research every single time. Sometimes it's just kind if we hang out together and, I just want to thank all of you that reached out to me and gave me the positive feedback on the walking episodes. I had no idea how much you guys would love that, but you did. And also all the amazing feedback on the menstrual cycle awareness episode. I got so many screenshots of all of you with your seeds and you're ready to start seed cycling. And I was just like, oh, I'm so proud of these like lovely ladies who are just going to get embracing their menstrual cycle. I'm just loving it. I am loving it. I'm loving all of the reviews you're writing me on Apple podcasts. If you haven't done that yet, please, 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 please write a review. Even if you listen on Spotify, hop over to Apple podcasts and write a review. It really helps me out, helps other people find the show. And quite frankly, I just love it. I love hearing what you think lots of good stuff going on Instagram. If you aren't following us on Instagram yet, follow me back from the borderline. I'm really kind of switching up my style on Instagram lately and I'm really liking it. I'm just kind of embracing my creativity, getting more true to me and really opening myself up. I put my first picture of myself on my Instagram account, which was a lot (laughs) for me because for the longest time, my, everything that I did revolved around my looks and I was just so obsessed with looking hot on Instagram. And I, for those of you who are long-term listeners, I had so much stuff to my body. I put a bunch of lip filler in a long time ago. I got breast implants, which I then got removed a couple of years ago. That's another story entirely. Um, I've done, fillers and other parts of my face that now thankfully are dissolved. I've fucked with my hair. I've just done a lot of stuff to my poor little body. And I realized for a while that I just wanted to take a step back from that and have it not be about my physical appearance and have it be about me, my voice, my story. And so I sat down in front of my camera for the last two years, like every time I started taking a selfie or whatever, I just felt so cringe. I was just like, Oh, it just doesn't feel right. But then the other day I sat down and I took a picture and it felt good. I liked how it looked and I didn't fucking filter the shit out of it. It was just me. And I posted it on Instagram with a caption and the response from all of you is just so amazing. Like being able to have a community of people that just get me, it really feels like I have a bunch of friends and you all have no idea how much that means to me because ever since I've been little, I've grown up and I always felt like too much, too much. I always kind of push people away and I know my listeners, a lot of you are the same way and being able to just never be too much for all of you and have all of you connect with what I'm doing. It's just so healing for me. And so whenever you tell me and reach out to me and say how healing the podcast is for you, I want you to know that it's just as healing for me because we're just reflecting that back to each other. It's just so, so nice. And I'm sniffing a lot. My allergies are freaking nuts. I live in Texas. There's just like, I swear to God, like a quarter inch of fucking pollen on everything. There's like a green pollen sheen and I'm going nuts, but If any of you suffer from allergies, there's this nasal emollient. It's called Ponaris. I don't know if you can get it anywhere but the US, but it's P-O-N-A-R-I-S. And it's this oil that you put in your nose. And apparently the astronauts, NASA recommend it to astronauts when they are in space. So if it's good enough for the astronauts, it's good enough for me. It's basically this oil you stick some drops in your nose. And it really helps with dryness because when allergy season kicks around for me, I start getting a dry fucking nose and I get bloody noses and I'm clearing my throat. And my voice, as y'all know already is like very raspy. And so during allergy season, it's even worse. And yeah, so you guys didn't really ask for my, uh, sob story about my allergies, but here we are. I told you, this is going to be like a relaxed episode. So today, I hope you're doing well. So this week I found an article, and I think it's kind of old, but it was just, it hit me to my core, and I really wanted to read it, and we're going to do what I've done before where I just read an article, and then I'm going to kind of just give you my reaction to it, and we can chat about it as we go, but this article just hit me, so it's by a girl named Kylie Rodriguez Cairo and I hope I'm not butchering her name but she's a Cuban American writer, mental health advocate and grassroots a- god can i not talk today? grassroots activist based in Salt Lake City. And her profile said she's an outspoken advocate for ending sexual and domestic violence against women, sex workers' rights, disability justice, and inclusive feminism. In addition to her writing, Kylie co-founded the Magdalene Collective, a sex work activist community in the Salt Lake City area. And this article that she wrote is called, Please Stop Using My Mental Illness to Fulfill Your Fantasy. And it's a really good article. And I wanted us to read it together. I will... Comment as we go and then I'm going to read you a little bit out of a book that I'm currently reading right now um called Sexy but Psycho and they go so well together and I'm thinking about making a post about this on Instagram too, so it's just all gonna tie it so neatly together. Now this article is all about sexist myths and fetishes surrounding people with borderline personality disorder, but not just BPD. This is just very sexist shit with women, women who have big feelings and express themselves in big ways. You don't have to be diagnosed with BPD, but it's just over how sexist society can be about women that are quote, quote, overly emotional. Um, So let's just dig straight into this article. I'm going to link the article itself in the show notes. So if you want to check it out and you want to learn more about the author of the article, then you can do that. Her Instagram and website are linked in it as well. So here it goes. Since I was 14 years old, the words monitor for a personality or mood disorder were written in bold in my medical charts. Today's the day I thought on my 18th birthday, as a legal adult, I'd finally get my official mental health diagnosis after years of being shipped from one mental health treatment program to the next. I'm just going to pause there because I'm just like, it's so true. And when, when we are in, when we're balls deep in our mental health recovery, I swear we're just, I don't know if you can relate to this, but I feel like we're constantly going, I can't wait to get my diagnosis. I just, we we are so focused on getting someone to tell us what's wrong with us. When in reality, fast forward to me seeing six different mental health professionals, I got a different diagnosis from each one of them. So the fact that we're like putting so much stock in, please, I just want someone to tell me what's wrong with me is just wild. Like it's wild. So she goes on to say, in my therapist's office, she explained, Kylie you have a mental health issue that's called borderline personality disorder. Naively optimistic, I felt relieved that I finally had the words to describe the mood swings, self-harm behaviors, bulimia, and intense emotions I experienced constantly. Yet the judgmental expression on her face led me to believe that my newfound sense of empowerment would be short-lived. The National Alliance of Mental Illness... NAMI estimates that between 1.6 and 5.9% of American adults have borderline personality disorder or BPD. They note that around 75% of people who receive a BPD diagnosis are women. Research suggests biological and sociocultural. Okay. I'm going to learn how to talk today, guys. I'm not even going to edit this out because you, you guys, you like here, you, you understand, sometimes we just can't read as well as we normally do. It's a long week. I'm in my inner autumn. As y'all know, if you listen to the menstrual cycle awareness episode, I'm like six days away from my period. I'm just, I'm just letting it flow. No, actually that's a really funny period joke. Okay. Next research suggests biological and sociocultural factors may be the cause of this gap. To receive a BPD diagnosis, you have to meet five out of nine criteria requirements set forth in the new edition of the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual for Mental Disorders, otherwise known as the DSM-5. They are an unstable sense of self, frantic fear of abandonment, issues maintaining interpersonal relationships, suicidal or self-harm behaviors, mood instability, feelings of emptiness, dissociation, outbursts of anger, and impulsivity. At 18, I met all the criteria. As I poured through websites that explained my mental illness, my hope for my future quickly morphed into a sense of shame. Growing up institutionalized with other teenagers living with mental illness, I wasn't exposed often to mental health stigma, but I didn't have to scour the dark corners of the internet to discover what many people thought of women with BPD. Borderlines are evil, read the first autocomplete search on Google. Self-help books for people with BPD had titles like Five Types of People Who Can Ruin Your Life. Was I a bad person? Sidebar from Molly here. I just, I, I, this makes me so sad. I felt the exact same way. This is why I have such a problem with borderline personality disorder as a diagnosis in general. This is why I hate the title. This is why I don't like even ever... Telling anyone that their personality is inherently disordered. So many of us as teens struggle with a lot of these symptom, uh, the symptomology of BPD, and it's normal to feel these feelings. And I feel like half of us are almost driven more crazy feeling by people denying our feelings and telling us, like I was told that I was the problem that I needed to, that I was too much. And that almost made everything worse and more intense. And so you have to wonder if we would have like affirming environments that were more suitable for highly sensitive children, women like us, that maybe this symptomology wouldn't turn into full-fledged mental illness, you know, and spiral out of control. But anyway, so Continuing on with the article, she says, I learned quickly to conceal my diagnosis, even from close friends and family. BPD felt like a scarlet letter, and I wanted to keep it as distant from my life as I could. Yearning for the freedom I sorely lacked throughout my teenage years, I left my treatment center a month after my 18th birthday. I kept my diagnosis a secret until I met my first serious boyfriend a couple of months later. He thought of himself as a hipster. When I confided in him that I had BPD, his face beamed with excitement. We grew up with movies like The Virgin Suicides and Garden State, where the main characters became infatuated with one-dimensional versions of mentally ill women at the height of their popularity. Because of this manic pixie girl trope, I believe there was a certain allure for him in having a mentally ill girlfriend. It felt impossible to navigate the unrealistic standards I had to live up to as a young woman, a mentally ill woman, to boot, so I felt desperate to normalize the way he exploited my BPD. I wanted my mental illness to be accepted. I wanted to be accepted. As our relationship progressed, he became enamored with certain aspects of my disorder. I was a girlfriend who was sometimes risky, impulsive, sexual, and empathetic to a fault. Yet the moment my symptoms shifted from quirky to crazy, from his perspective, mood swings, uncontrollable crying or cutting, I became disposable to him. The reality of mental health struggles left no room for his manic pixie dream girl fantasy to thrive, so we broke up shortly thereafter. Isn't that just convenient, you know? Isn't that? It's, it's sexy until you have to actually come in and be a supportive partner. As much as I feel that was my sidebar, if you couldn't tell (laughs) this next section of the article is called beyond the movies. So she continues as much as I feel our society clings to the myth that women with borderline personality disorder are unlovable and downright toxic in relationships. Women with BPD and other mental illnesses are also objectified. Dr. Tori eisenlor Mole, I'm butchering that name guaranteed, an assistant professor at psychiatry at the University of Illinois at Chicago, tells Healthline that many of the behaviors women with borderline display get rewarded by society in the short term, but in the long term get harshly punished. Historically, there's been an intense fascination with mentally ill women— Throughout the 19th century and long before that, women deemed sick with hysteria were turned into theatrical spectacles for predominantly male doctors to perform public experiments on. More often than not, these treatments were non-consensual. This mental health stigma plays out more harshly for women with borderline personality disorder because our society is so ready to dismiss women as crazy, says Dr. Eisenhower-Mull. The lore surrounding severely mentally ill women has evolved over time to dehumanize them in different ways. A notable example is when Donald Trump appeared on the Howard Stern show in 2004 and in a discussion about Lindsay Lohan said, how come the deeply troubled women, you know, I'm not even going to do a Donald Trump voice. I was going to (laughs) try. I was really about to do it, but I'm just not. How come the deeply troubled women, you know, deeply, deeply troubled. They're always the best in bed. Despite how disturbing Trump's comments were, the stereotype that crazy women are great at sex is very common. Whether adored or hated, seen as a one-night stand, or a path to enlightenment, I feel the ever-present weight of stigma attached to my disorder. The three small words, I am a borderline. And I can watch someone's eyes shift as they create a backstory for me in their minds. Ooh, that just really hits me too. That's another reason why I get so many messages on Instagram where girls will ask me or other people, other people will ask me, but mostly women. That's the majority of um, my followers. Like I think 89% of my followers on Instagram identify as women, according to my analytics. And they ask me like, when should I disclose my diagnosis? And I'm always just like, you know what? Save that for your most intimate circle. There's nothing, and I don't understand the whole like thing going now, where it's like I'm proud of my diagnosis. I'm proud to be BPD. I'm not proud to be BPD because literally, BPD, borderline personality disorder, is some label made up by a bunch of white guys sitting in a room. I'm not. I'm proud to be myself. I'm proud of my emotions. I'm not proud of BPD. I don't understand the whole culture right now of like waving our diagnoses, like some, like, like a pride flag, you know, I understand the point of the pride flag, but I don't understand of waving our diagnoses around as like a, like this identity that we're attaching ourselves to. I really don't understand that. And when she says that she tells people, when she tells people she's a borderline that she can watch someone's eyes shift and they start to create a story for the, her and their minds, the moment you say also who says I am a borderline. No, you're not a borderline. That's not who you are. You may struggle with certain symptomology and the treatments and maybe DBT skills are something that you find helpful, but you are not listener a borderline. Even if you have a diagnosis of BPD on your medical records, you are not a borderline. You're so much more than that. And I want to tell you that, right? So, she goes on to say, there are risks for those of us who fall on the crux of both ableism and sexism. One 2004 study revealed 40% of women with severe mental illness had been sexually assaulted as an adult. Beyond that, 69% also reported experiencing some form of domestic violence. In fact, women with disabilities of any kind are more likely to be subjected to sexual violence than women without. This becomes particularly devastating in context of mental illnesses like BPD. Though childhood sexual abuse isn't considered to be an essential factor in developing BPD, research has suggested somewhere between 40 and 70% of people with BPD have also experienced childhood sexual trauma. As a childhood sexual abuse survivor, I realized through therapy that my BPD had developed as a result of the abuse I endured. I learned that, albeit unhealthy, my daily suicidal ideation, self-harm, eating disorder, and impulsiveness were all just coping mechanisms. They were my mind's way of communicating. You need to survive by any means necessary. Though I've learned to respect my boundaries through treatment, I'm still filled with constant anxiety that my vulnerability could lead to more abuse and re-victimization. Bessel van der Kolk, MD, wrote in his book, The Body Keeps the Score, amazing book by the way, That culture shapes the expression of traumatic stress. While this is true of trauma, I can't help but believe gender roles have played an essential part in why women with BPD are particularly ostracized or objectified. This stigma plays out more harshly for women with borderline personality disorder because our society is so ready to dismiss women as crazy, Dr. Eisenlaw-Mool says. The punishment for a woman being impulsive is so much greater than a man being impulsive think about that. I'm going to say that again. The punishment for a woman being impulsive is so much greater than a man being impulsive. Even as I progressed through my mental health recovery and figured out how to manage my borderline symptoms in healthy ways, I've learned that my feelings will never be quiet enough for some people. Boom, right there. That hits me so much. Our feelings as women with PPD or women with big emotions, emotion dysregulation problems. Is it even a problem anymore? I don't know. I don't know how head fucked I am by the patriarchy anymore. (laughs) This wasn't meant to be a radically feminist episode, but who knows? Let's see where this takes us. When she says I've learned that my feelings will never be quiet enough for some people. That makes me just want to like yell that from the rooftops. It's so true. You don't have to have quiet feelings. Just because your feelings make other people uncomfortable, that's not your problem, right? Unless you're being an intentionally, intentionally hurtful, of course. But so many of us as children were just expressing ourselves, for example, and we were told we were too much. We were told to go away. I know for sure that happened to me. I was even told expressly as a child, like I was the reason my family dynamic was so fucked up. Isn't that just like a lolcanoe? Our culture already teaches women to. I'm back to the article now, by the way. (laughs) Our culture already teaches women to internalize their anger and their sadness, to be seen and not heard. Women with borderline personality disorder who feel boldly and deeply are the complete antithesis of how we're taught women should be. Think about it. Women are meant to be demure and seen and not heard and quiet and um, obedient. And those of us with BPD, if you've been diagnosed with BPD, or if you identify with BPD symptomology, you probably have big feelings. You're expressive. And that goes against the way society has taught us how women should be having borderline personality disorder as a woman means being continuously caught in the crossfire between mental health stigma and sexism. I used to carefully decide who I shared my diagnosis with, but now I live unapologetically in my truth. The stigma and myths our society perpetuates for women with BPD aren't our cross to bear. I love that article. The only thing I disagree with her with, where she says, like, I used to carefully decide who I share my diagnosis with, but now I live unapologetically in my truth— I don't know what she means by that. I don't know if that means that she's just out there being like, I have BPD and I don't give a fuck. And that's fair, like go off, but that's not what I choose to do because again, I just believe they're really problematic. Um, There's a problematic history behind the term borderline personality disorder in the first place. And that's what we're going to talk about now. So now that we started off with that article, I want to read you a chapter from the book I'm reading right now. It's by Dr. Jessica Taylor, and it's called Sexy But Psycho, How the Patriarchy Uses Women's Trauma Against Them. This book is so good, and I'm taking a little bit of a risk reading a chapter out of it. It's, it's short. I think it's maybe, you know, just like six pages. So I want this to be a... I'm taking a risk just because I hope it's okay with her that I share this. It's a short piece of this book and I intend for this to be an advertisement for her damn book. It's so good and I recommend any woman who's been diagnosed with BPD or thinks they have BPD or any other mental illness to read this book because it talks about the history of psychiatry and some of the problematic things, (laughs) a lot of the problematic things. I think it's really important that all of us are aware of this. And this book is pretty new and she's an author that's based in the United Kingdom and um, I couldn't even get this book on Prime so I don't know how easy it is to get your hands on it but I highly recommend it. I'll link it in the show notes as well as well as the article that I just read. The reason why I want to read this chapter in particular is because it goes so well with the article we just read and this chapter is chapter three out of *Sexy with Psycho*, and it's called *A History of Perfect Women and Crazy Women*. And as we get into it, um, you'll understand why I chose to read this particular one to you. It just carries on the theme of, you know, it's one thing to identify with a label like borderline personality disorder, but know where these terms came from and know the deeply misogynistic history behind categorizing women as crazy and hysterical. It's so, so important. And by the way, this isn't to invalidate anybody's BPD diagnosis. I just think my listeners, y'all ever, you'll know this already, you know, I don't want to do that, but for new listeners that are happening upon this episode, just know that, but right. Part of even BPD treatment is learning to think in a more nuanced way and not split, right? So it's good that we know this information. You want to know the history behind things. I'd much rather know the full story so that I can figure out the best way forward. And me learning about this stuff has allowed me to not cling so tightly to the label of BPD. I'm just myself. I'm a unique human being. And I want to know how the systems that are meant to help us also are built on racism and misogyny and a bunch of other fucked up shit right and this is just the reality are there people out there and therapists out there who are amazing human beings absolutely but just know that the systems like the american psychological association for example and all of these systems behind it there is some they are built on some problematic thoughts and beliefs and We still have a long way to go, but we've also come a long way too since then. I love how therapy is becoming more trauma-informed, and I think we're moving towards a reality where we're not clinging as tightly to labels or disordered-type viewpoints, but I digress. Let's just dive straight into this chapter. It starts off with a quote by Pope Innocent III. We and our whole community of canons, recognizing that the wickedness of women is greater than all of the other wickedness of the world, and that there is no anger like that of a woman, and that the poison of asps and dragons is more curable and less dangerous to men than the familiarity of women— have unanimously decreed for the safety of our souls no less than that of our bodies and goods that we will on no account receive any more sisters to the increase of our perdition but will avoid them like poisonous animals again this is a quote from a pope right the chapter begins the ideal or perfect woman has not changed much in hundreds of years As old as some of the stories and examples from history books will be, it's important that we see how similar they are to present-day cases. As far back as we can go, women have been classified as the inferior sex— not just inferior though because that's too forgiving for the patriarchy simply classifying women as inferior and weaker was never going to be powerful enough for men to gain complete control over them because all it would take would be a demonstration by a handful of women that they were not inferior and were as capable as men and the jig would very much be up hope you like this asmr page turning vibes that i'm giving you right now i'm not even going to edit it out Instead, it was vital that men framed women not only as physically inferior, but mentally inferior too. Most people are aware that this systemic misogyny and the way it stopped girls from participating in education and stopped women from being able to vote. However, men went much further than simply suggesting that women couldn't get their pretty little brains around mathematics and politics, and deliberately and persistently described and treated women as unstable, unreliable evil, crazy, and dangerous. That way, no matter what they did or said, or attempted, or disclosed, or reported, or invented, or criticized, it would be positioned as a hysterical lie, a malicious accusation, or the mad ramblings of a crazy old fisherman's wife. The concept of the ideal woman has barely changed in centuries. And what is probably the most interesting fact about the ideal woman concept is that it's curiously similar around the world, despite there being differences in cultures, religions, languages, fashion, economies, laws, rights, and norms. The ideal woman has always been the same beautiful, young, white, heterosexual, feminine, childbearing, obedient, dependent, submissive, polite committed, faithful, virginal, or with only one significant sexual partner, sexually available to her male partner, but only when he says so and how he says so. Any deviation from this strict set of requirements would, and still will, lead to women being ostracized, demonized, pathologized, sexualized, or criminalized consider the opposites of the list above and how hated a woman would be if she contradicted all of the criteria of the ideal woman. And what I love is how she has this, like she has this chart here that you can't see now, but she basically has Imagine in one category, she has a list of, of characteristics and it says ideal woman. And then on the other side, there's another set of characteristics, which are the opposite of the ideal woman and they're labeled crazy woman. So I'll try to like explain this to you in the best way I can. So in under ideal woman, it says beautiful, young, heterosexual, feminine, white, obedient, dependent, submissive, polite, committed, faithful, virginal, sexually chaste. in crazy woman, right? Is the opposite of those traits, ugly, old, lesbian, or bisexual, non-feminine or masculine presenting black, disobedient, independent, Powerful, impolite, casual, unfaithful, sexually liberated or active, or promiscuous. All of those traits are what society considers the crazy woman. Sound familiar to any of us with BPD? Promiscuous, huh? (laughs) So I'm going to keep going. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Interestingly, all the attributes from the list on the right have been used to diagnose, section, medicate, abuse, and imprison women in the past, and for some in the present day too. Many of the attributes on the right were used to describe and then prosecute women for being witches. While it may seem odd to trace psychiatry back to its supernatural origins, there are undeniable and influential roots in religion, Satanism, witches, and Catholicism that should never be ignored. In fact, I would suggest that understanding the history of religion, misogyny within the church, and the witch trials increases our understanding of modern-day feminism and modern-day mental health systems exponentially." Much before witches, the perfect woman was created by Christian priests and theologians and Mary, the mother of Jesus. The story of Mary is an interesting one, as she is invented, reinvented, shifted, and changed over the course of several hundred years to make her womanhood utterly unattainable to every other female in the world. Jack Holland traces this reinvention of Mary in his book, A Brief History of Misogyny, The World's Oldest Prejudice. He writes that in 431 AD, Mary was announced as the mother of Jesus and the mother of God. A young peasant Jewish girl from Palestine was elevated to the highest possible position in the world. She was the mother of God and therefore the mother of the entire universe. However, whilst most people will be familiar with the issue around her immaculate conception and the way the church invented her story to mean that she was a virgin, that her hymen never split, and that she was completely clean when she gave birth to Jesus, what most don't know is that for hundreds of years there were also questions about her own conception. How could this young peasant girl be divine enough to carry Jesus if she herself was born from sin? If she was born from sex between two humans, she was tainted by lust and therefore could never be good enough to birth God. It became an unthinkable scandal that Mary, the perpetual virgin, the mother of Jesus and God, the queen of heaven and birther of the entire universe, could ever have been conceived in this way. What followed was an amazing sleight of hand in which Pope Pius IX officially proclaimed the doctrine of Mary's immaculate conception in 1854, making her the only person other than Jesus to be conceived without sex. Mary, the young peasant girl from Palestine, was born divine, and no further questions were needed. She had never been tainted by lust or sex, and she lived as the perfect woman, died, and then went to heaven. Holland writes that Mary served as a constant, contradictory, and impossible role model for women, and no other woman would ever achieve immaculate conception, and that all of their children would be tainted by original sin. No other woman would ever be as perfect, passive, obedient, or dutiful as Mary. No other woman could ever be as sexless and repress their desire or lust for others. And yet, women tried. Between the 9th and 13th centuries, women moved to convents to remove themselves from society and give themselves to God and to practice all the obedience, celibacy, and passivity that Mary had demonstrated. By the 13th century, nunneries were commonplace across Europe with hundreds of thousands of women teaching and learning how to write, read, sew, meditate, pray, and work together on beautiful pieces of poetry, art, and literature. This was eventually denounced by Pope Innocent III, who prohibited women from becoming leaders or authorities within the church, which was met with misogyny and celebration from men who sought to keep women away from religion and power. This is where that quote comes back in again from the beginning of the chapter. This is literally the quote around this same time that we're talking about that the Pope said and came out and made this declaration. I'm going to read it again. We in the whole community of canons, recognizing that the wickedness of women is greater than all of the other wickedness of the world, and that there is no anger like that of a woman, and that the poison of asps and dragons is more curable and less dangerous to men than the familiarity of women, have unanimously decreed for the safety of our souls no less than that of our bodies and goods, then we will on no account receive any more sisters to the increase of our perdition, but will avoid them like poisonous animals. This decree was to have a long lasting and important impact on women for many centuries to come and was to become the setup for the belief that women were the most evil, dangerous, and wickedest creatures of all. The word witch is thought to have come from the 16th century derogatory term witche, which was used to describe women who were evil, aging, malicious, and dried up. Simultaneously, the word slut was developed from its 15th century origins, which meant an unkempt, dirty, slovenly woman. As time went on, both terms became intertwined to mean women with low morals, evil intent, and loose sexuality. And because morals and religious law were so tied up with female biology and female sexuality, they became intrinsically linked over time. In 2017, Kristen Soley wrote an excellent historical account of the links between the categorization of women as witches and sluts, in which she argues that the mysteries and contentions of female biology have dominated religion and artistic thought for over 200,000 years. While modern mainstream religions chose to ignore or subjugate women, historic and ancient religions often had female gods and female elders— However, as time went on, society rejected the concept of females in power and all major world religions moved towards patriarchal models of power and humanity. This is important because around the same time, female power, intellect, and nonconformity began to be rep- repositioned as a sin or as demonic possession. In some ways, witches are a stereotype of everything that the patriarchy attempts to control, ignore, or eradicate in women and girls. Soli which is this is a source in this book 2017 writes that everything about the witch flew in the face of the patriarchal control. And so men made them into the most obscene caricatures possible, a message to women, never be like the witches or be subjected to trial, hanging, drowning, or burning. The message was clear. Don't age. Don't step out of line. Don't read too many books. Don't know too much. Don't question men. Don't learn about the moon or the stars. Don't know about nature. Don't be gay. Don't be unattractive to men. Don't be outspoken. Don't be angry. Don't be independent. Don't be disobedient. Don't be impolite. Don't be powerful. Don't be a slut. Don't be a witch, or we'll kill you. And even if you are none of those things, we can accuse you of them, and the weight of that accusation will be enough to have you killed anyway. This is of vital importance look how little has changed in the last five centuries. Replace the word witch with the word crazy, and replace the reference to killing with the new medical terms such as sectioned or treated, and what do you have? Traditional psychiatry. Replace the word crazy with the term borderline or emotionally unstable, and what do you have? Modern psychiatry. Therefore, What we can argue is that there has been a clear path from being castigated as a witch to being labeled as crazy to the modern-day diagnosis of a woman or girl with a personality disorder, and I am not the first person to argue this. Usher, 2013, another source in the book here, wrote that borderline personality disorder is the, quote, wastebasket of mental health, end quote and is simply the gradual modernization of the same stereotypes and accusations that would have a woman burned at the stake as a witch. True to the title of this book, witches were often seen as sexy but psycho. Women who were reported or accused of being witches were often punished and killed due to their sexuality, female masturbation, discussion of female pleasure, or their sexual behavior. The Catholic Church played an instrumental part in this construction of sexual women as witches and shared posters and leaflets about female pleasure being satanic and devious. In 1486, a document entitled The Maleus Maleficarum was published and shared widely across Europe. The document used the most misogynistic texts from the Bible and from famous classical philosophers to create a doctrine about the hunting and killing of witches and women in general. It's widely regarded as one of the most misogynistic texts of all time, with entire sections made up of lies and accusations about women's biology, brains, sexuality, sexual pleasure, and links to the devil. It accused witches of being able to stop women from becoming pregnant, making them leave their husbands, and being able to make men impotent. The text stated that non-conforming women have been having sex with the devil, which made them evil and powerful with incredible knowledge of female biology, reproduction, pregnancy, and birth. And then it lists a citation for this. The accusations of witchcraft had long-standing impacts on medicine, in which only male doctors were trusted. When women demonstrated any competent knowledge of female biology, they were accused of being a witch and killed. This meant that women were learned or experienced in supporting women to give birth or have safe pregnancies became prime suspects of witchcraft. If the pregnancy went well with her advice, witchcraft was blamed and she was killed. If the pregnancy ended in miscarriage or stillbirth, witchcraft was blamed and she was killed. Because of this, midwives were often seen as some of the most dangerous and evil of all witches because men in power felt that they knew far too much about birth, health, fertility and female biology. Leaflets and rumors were spread by the Catholic church that midwives received their powers from the devil and that God would only work his powers through male doctors as women were too inferior to receive power and knowledge from God. Wow. (laughs) The wow is from me, not from Dr. Uh, Jessica Taylor, which is where essentially whatever men in power wanted them to be Soleil a source again, says that men created images of witches to be whatever they needed them to be at the time, to either excuse, explain, or confuse women. If a man had been cheating on his wife, he might argue that the young woman he'd slept with was a witch who cast a spell on him. If his crops died, he might argue that the woman next door was an evil witch who killed all his crops or salted the earth. If his child was unwell, he might accuse his wife or another female family member of cursing them. Women were scapegoated for anything and everything during the centuries of witch trials. So in the 17th century, when women started to pass knowledge to each other about natural birth control and abortion of unwanted pregnancies, one of the first accusations made by the church was that birth control, contraceptive methods, and abortions were satanic witchcraft. During her research, Soleil found that the early anti-abortion movements in the late 1800s were heavily based on the demonization of midwives and female doctors, and instead encouraged the public to trust and favor male doctors instead of female midwives, doctors, and nurses, an issue that's never really gone away. In 2020, I interviewed Natalie, an experienced and qualified nurse from Scotland who had been subjected to rape and domestic abuse by her ex-partner and father of her baby, In order to discredit her, he'd repeatedly accused her of being mentally ill during the court cases, and this had been recorded on her personal files. Natalie's child had a short illness as a toddler, which presented as a persistent temperature which did not respond to paracetamol. And for those of you who are not in the UK, paracetamol is the same thing as Advil or ibuprofen, so the child had a resistant fever. Having tried everything she knew from her own knowledge, she called an out of hours out-of-hours hospital service for advice and was told to give more paracetamol. Natalie argued and said that she'd already given it and then listed dosages and times with the corresponding hourly temperatures. She explained that she was a nurse and that she felt that her child needed to be seen by an emergency doctor immediately. Two days later, she was visited by two child protection social workers who informed her that the call handler had reported her to social care for having quote too much knowledge quote about children's health issues and suggested that she might be fabricating the illness of her child due to her so-called mental health issues. What interested me most about this example was the way that Natalie's years of experience and qualifications as a registered nurse meant very little when contrasted against the testimony of her ex-husband and rapist who had defended himself by telling every agency he could that she was mentally ill. Years later, and even after he was convicted, she was still being regarded as mentally ill and quote, knowing too much, quote, even when utilizing her own medical expertise. After the Renaissance and after the outlawing of witch trials, women were not suddenly liberated from these stereotypes and stories of evil, dangerous, sexually deviant women. Instead, men looked to science and medicine for reasons as to why women were so inferior and problematic, and, as expected, they found what they were looking for in abundance. What used to be known as original sin, demonic possession, or witchcraft quickly moved to medical explanations of imbalances of four humors in the body, which controlled personality types and caused illness and madness. The four humors were theorized to be choleric, yellow bile, melancholic, black bile, sanguine, blood, and phlegmatic, phlegm. Beliefs began with Hippocrates and Galen, who both theorized that the humors in the body could determine your moods, personality, and character. We could think of it as the earliest form of personality psychology, which is now dominated by trait theory. Too much black bile would be reported to be the cause of depression. Too much yellow bile would be reported to be the cause of aggression and violence. This would be the beginning of the medicalization of mental health, trauma, and distress. Hippocrates wrote of women who were incoherent, scared, depressed, nervous, and relied heavily on humors to explain their experiences. Their complex mental and social lives were reduced to four fluids in the body, an archaic idea, which we seem to be moving back to with every step towards reductionism, genes, and biological theories of mental illness. Women were considerably impacted by the move towards medicalization of distress and emotion, especially as there was virtually no science about the female body or reproductive system, which remained shrouded in mystery for centuries dreams of laughable and harmful diagnoses and treatments were based on humoral and then later medical explanations of women's suffering and distress which led to everything from being bled until they died to holding frogs to remove evil from their bodies dear god again another sidebar for me whilst medicine was moving forward, mental illness was still entwined with magic, religion, spirituality, and myth, and so was the stereotype of the ideal perfect woman. As time has progressed, the concept of the perfect woman has hardly changed at all, and women who step outside this narrow expectation are regularly positioned as crazy, obsessed, psychotic, promiscuous, or disordered. As of today, being female is widely reported as correlating with almost every mental disorder in the DSM-5. Women are more likely to be diagnosed with depression, anxiety, and somatic disorders. They're also more likely to be diagnosed with borderline personality disorder, generalized anxiety disorder, panic disorder, phobias, suicidal ideation, and attempts, postpartum depression and psychosis, eating disorders, and PTSD. And she lists a source for this. This is The Lancet 2016, The World Health Organization 2019, and Psychology Today in 2019. Women are also much more likely to be diagnosed with multiple psychiatric disorders at the same time, and the source for this she lists as Anxiety and Depression Association of America in 2019. It's as if no one has been able to ever join the dots. Why have we not considered that women are living in a patriarchy, which oppresses, objectifies, sexualizes, controls, humiliates, and discriminates against them on a daily basis? Why are we ignoring the most obvious explanation that women and girls exist in an environment which causes them serious harm? And why have we reframed the global common and collective trauma of women and girls as hundreds of man-made misogynistic psychiatric disorders, which reside inside the brains of mentally disordered women and girls. And who could possibly benefit from that? I ponder. Very, very good chapter. Um, Again, I highly recommend this book by Dr. Jessica Taylor called Sexy But Psycho. I will link it in the show notes. It is great. It's been really illuminating. And just because I'm reading this passage of this very feminist book, I want you to know that so many other people have been demonized as well. There's so much racism. There's so much stigma against being gay or trans or anything that deviates outside the norm of how we should act. And that's what I really want us to be focusing on now. These archaic ways of how we should be. And when I read this, it really helped me to start thinking about like, is it a problem the way I am? Or has society just told me it's a problem the way I am? And there are certain things that I know that don't serve me, like being super reactive and not being very self-aware. But there are other things that aren't that big of a deal. Like, I don't know, just having big feelings and maybe crying. I had my first meeting with an executive coach this week. I've always wanted to work with um a business coach and my coach is such a badass bitch. I know she wouldn't mind me calling her that. She's so badass and she owns her own business. She's in a diverse she's a diversity and inclusion specialist. She's so qualified. She's I'm pretty sure she is, has some trauma qualifications in her background. She works with nonprofits. She's just such a cool person and she told me, you know, I started crying and she, when I was talking about something and she, I said, sorry, you know, and she kind of, she's working with me where she's catching me. And I'm always apologizing for myself. I'm apologizing for my emotions. And as she's catching me on that, I'm realizing like, wow, I've really been beaten down by society in that. My big displays of emotion are somehow a problem. And I encourage you to start thinking about this. And if you're a man and you're listening to this, or if you're someone who doesn't identify as a woman, um, there's just, there are ways that society tells you how you should be too. And I encourage you to just think about that. And also, if you are a man specifically listening to this, this isn't to shame you. I mean, I'm, I'm dating a man right now and he's incredibly aware of these things. And I know that if he heard something like this going down, a woman being spoken to this way, he would speak up and there are amazing men out there. There are amazing people that don't identify as a woman out there. All of us have to come together and kind of call this bullshit out together as a, as, as a society, as people, as human beings, right? There isn't just one way to be. You can be how you want to be. But the one thing that's not cool is treating people like shit, right? And <laughs> I know myself, regardless of whether or not I, you know, i everyone that listens to this knows I was diagnosed with BPD traits. I was never diagnosed with borderline personality disorder. I didn't meet the full criteria, but there was a time in my life that I really treated people like shit. I was really selfish, really not aware. I was not self-aware at all. I really kind of thought the world revolved around me and this is not to give excuse to that type of behavior, but I know that in my darkest time, when I had filled my lips up, I had massive fake boobs. I was putting like the sexiest, hottest pictures on Instagram that I could editing the shit out of my pictures, trying so hard to get the validation of men and then being kind of like accused sexualized but then also probably thought of as a slut all these things it makes me so angry now growing up in the age that i did in you know as a millennial growing up in the age of AOL instant messenger as we've talked about before the the rise of reality tv things like america's next top model the simple life with paris and nicole just seeing the ways that celebrities like britney spears and lindsay lohan were demonized for their erratic behavior. That to me is like modern day witch hunt shit. And it's not fucking okay. And I sometimes look back and I'm like, God, no wonder I felt so fucked up. And if you grew up in that same time as I did, or if you're a Gen Z now too, and also Gen X and other, um, We can go back, as as we just did, we went back as far as like the 1300s in this episode of how fucked up shit was in um, times before us, but I'm just speaking from my own experience. It's been a hard time to be growing up as a woman or a girl, uh, trying to fit these fucking impossible beauty standards, right? Like we're supposed to have huge, massive lips, snatched fox eyes, tiny little nose, tiny waist, fat ass, big boobs. But maybe now a fat ass isn't in style anymore. It's almost like that's going away and low-rise jeans are coming back. God help us. God, I I do not want the the return of low-rise jeans, my friends. I don't I don't want to see butt cracks. I'm good. I don't want the whole like thong sticking out thing to come back. Like I remember that very clearly. I also just watched an amazing documentary on Netflix. I think it's called it's something about Abercrombie. Let's look it up. Abercrombie documentary Netflix. I hope y'all like this just like very casual style I'm doing this. It's called White Hot: The Rise and Fall of Abercrombie & Fitch, an exploration of the brand's pop culture reign in the late 1990s and early 2000 and how it thrived on exclusion. Highly recommend watching it. It blew my fucking mind. And if you were a millennial like me growing up in that time period, going to like junior high and high school between for me was probably like 2002 to 2008. It's going to just like, you need to watch it. That's all I'm going to say. And it will go very well with this episode and what we've been talking about. So Thank you for joining me today. I hope you found this illuminating. Again, give me feedback, write me, um, let me know how you like this episode. Don't worry, I'm not turning this into like a raging feminist podcast. <laughs> um, but you know what? This is really important stuff. And also there's nothing wrong with raging feminism, by the way. I consider myself a feminist, I would say, but I'm just a humanist, right? Like I want all of us to have Equality. I want all of us to be able to live how the fuck we want to live and not have society telling us one way to be or saying if we're feeling a certain way that that's wrong. That's the kind of shit I don't like. I want all of us to be free to live the way that we want. That's all. Um, I hope you have an amazing week. I'm planning on making an Instagram post about this. And so for all of you who are listeners, you get like the, the hot... Behind the scenes, tea on this. I found this amazing image of Megan Fox from Jennifer's body where she's like in full demon mode. And I think I'm going to make a post on Instagram that's like, witch or borderline bitch. And I'm like, oh yeah, that's good. I'm really proud of that, right? And then I'm just going to include part of the passage of this book that I read and encourage people to listen to this episode. So there's a little behind the scenes sneak peek of how I'm formulating some of my Instagram content. But think it's really important that we become aware of these things, folks. It's really, really important that we know about the history behind things, because I will say it now. I'll say it once. I'll say it a million times. You are not your BPD. You are not your generalized anxiety disorder. You're not these labels. These labels are While they can be helpful in making sure that we get the kind of the right therapy that we need, um, the right resources, they can help us find good books and literature on these things, but it's important to know the problematic side of some of these labels and disorders as well so that we can find a balanced middle ground. And what does that balanced middle ground look like for me? It helps connect me with, I think, DBT skills. Some of them are so helpful for me. It's helped me connect with um, Jungian analysis. Well, I can't talk today. (laughs) Um, I love the work of Carl Jung. I think it's really, um, it's opened my mind. It's really helpful. I love the idea of shadow work. I love the work of Pete Walker. If you don't know of him, he does a lot of stuff on complex post-traumatic stress disorder. So diagnoses are helpful in the fact that they can help point us in the right direction, but I don't think that they should become our identities. And I don't think that we should lose sight of the problematic history behind the labels themselves. Have an amazing week. I can't wait to see you right back here next time. And I love each and every single one of you. I hope that this has opened your mind and expanded your, your vision of how these things come to be. And I hope you become a little less identified with those labels. I want you to just remember that you are a human, you're a human being, and you have a right to live the way you want to live. You have a right to love the people you want to love. You have a right to feel the way you want to feel, dress the way you want to dress, work in the job that you want to work or not, or express yourself the way you want to express yourself. That's what I want to leave you with. I love you. See ya. All right, you messy, amazing, emotional, fabulous human beings doing this life thing. That is it for today's episode. I want to thank you so much for listening because out of all the millions, billions of podcasts in the world, you chose to listen to mine. And that means a lot to me. And if you listen this far, I know you never want to miss a new episode. So to make sure that doesn't happen, click follow in your podcast player of choice, and you will be alerted every time I drop a new one. To help me grow and help the podcast reach as many people as possible, go ahead and leave an honest rating and review. Not only that, I love to hear your feedback, so please share it with me. I read every single review, and you just might hear it read out loud on the podcast. To connect with me directly, follow me on social media and keep up with all the new updates. You can find that all at backfromtheborderline.com. And as always, any articles, resources, or other helpful information you've heard today can be found in the description of this podcast episode, so don't forget to check out the show notes. And until we meet again, remember, life is a circle, a cycle, a process, separation, initiation, return.